Hello, mamas, and welcome back to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast. Today, we are chatting all about the obstetrical dilemma with the beautiful Dr. Natalie Elfingston. Enjoy. Hey, mama, I'm sending you wonderful pregnancy vibes. It's time for you to guide you through. Let's take some time for you. It's pregnancy with physio. Hello, mamas, and welcome back to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast. I am so excited for this chat. I have actually not had an obstetrician on the podcast at all. So this is the first obstetrician I have interviewed, and I'm so excited that it is Dr. Natalie Elphinston. You can find her on Instagram at Dr. Natalie Elphinston. So I met Natalie at an event for birth last year, and I got chatting to her. She seemed to be the real VIP in the room and I was really fascinated. Everyone was coming up to her and saying, I love the work you're doing, you're, you're making waves. And I just I'm drawn to this woman. There's something that's attracting me about her. And I got chatting to her and I found the work that she was doing in the world so fascinating. So I find with birth, and I've been there myself before, but there can be very black and white thinking. So if you're, say, pro-home birth and you're anti-obstetrician, And if you're pro-intervention, then you're like anti-free birth. And I've come to realize in my many varied birth experiences that there's so much gray. And I found it really fascinating to talk to someone like Natalie, who is an obstetrician. She is a qualified medical professional. And that can often come with a lot of judgment and a lot of baggage from many women who think that obstetricians aren't woman-centered and don't serve women in birth because Natalie is trying to do the total opposite. And it was a really humbling, interesting, informative conversation. And I encourage everyone to listen to it, regardless of what model of care, because I think it gives you a real appreciation for the different dilemmas that each profession face when they're trying to serve women as best they can with the knowledge that they have and the tools that they have. And there's so much unlearning that Natalie has had to do to find her role in the world and what feels good for her. And I just think this is the most fascinating conversation. And I'm so glad because I really, I really wanted to get an obstetrician on the podcast, but I didn't have the right fit. I didn't know who to get on because there's many obstetricians that have a very different view on birth to say what I have. And Natalie and I share so many similarities and I think her perspective is really unique and really important. So I really hope you love this chat. As always, I'd love to hear from you at PhysioLaura. Let me know what you thought about this conversation. Spread it far and wide for anyone that may be holding fear around having an obstetrician attend their birth or like not sure how they can find that middle ground between appreciating all professions when it comes to the birth space. I think this could be really fascinating for them to listen to because like I said, I think there's definitely room for all. So if you want to follow Natalie, you can find it at Dr. Natalie Elphinston on Instagram, but otherwise enjoy this chat, mamas. It's really beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Dr. Natalie Elfingston. I'm so excited to have you. Like I was saying in the pre-chat before we hit record is that you have such a unique and interesting view on birth and pregnancy. I got to meet you in person at Sophie Walker's birth book launch and I was captivated by you and what we were talking about. And I remember just thinking, this lady is so interesting. And I really need to follow this up and get to know her better. So welcome. You are the first obstetrician I've had on the podcast. 
Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. And then this is the first physio podcast that I've done as well. So it's the first one. <laughs> Great. So we can be nervous together. Yep. <laughs> so, please don't ask me anything about pelvic anatomy. I know it, but don't get me wrong. I'll take the lead on that one. That's yep. all good. <laughs> so this will help the audience get to know you a little bit better. But I wanted to go back to you announced on social media in 2022 that you were changing your approach to pregnancy and birth. So you were changing it from a what to do and how to do it approach to a when to do nothing approach, which I found so interesting. And A, I love the public declaration around that. I think your vulnerability on social media and your willingness to say, hey, I did this wrong or I could be better, I've made mistakes. So I just think that's really impressive. And just publicly declaring, hey, this is how I'm changing things. That's scary, I imagine. But I think that's so brave and I so honor you for doing that. But I'd love to know, what does that mean to you, the approach change? And also, where was that coming from? What was the drivers for you to go and change your approach to pregnancy and birth? You're right. It's such a journey that I find myself on at the moment because for so long in my life, like obviously to train to become qualified as an obstetrician took many years. Like literally, I can't even count it. Six years of medical school, six years of obstetric training, the time it takes to get on the obstetric program. So about 15 years or so for me to get from being a doctor from high school and then all the way through to becoming an obstetrician. That's um, a huge amount of time. 15 years. And that's about the, that's probably actually about the shortest amount of time you can actually do it in. And, uh, but that 15 years worth of training was quite sort of single-minded focused on um, what obstetrics looks like in the medical model. And obviously obstetrics is a medical model. It is looking at, first of all, we train as a doctor, so it's learning about disease, it's learning about problems, it's learning about how to fix them, what the medicines are, what the surgeries are, what the solutions are. Um, And then it's coming at obstetrics or childbirth from that viewpoint as well. So it's fairly focused on what the problems are of childbirth and pregnancy, what the medicines are to fix those problems, what the surgeries are to fix those problems. It's pathological focused. And that is the role of an obstetrician. It can't ever be forgotten that the actual role of the obstetrician is to be dealing with the problems of pregnancy and childbirth. Not ever, it was not supposed to be, we've made it, but it shouldn't be that the obstetrician is there to look after low risk and uncomplicated pregnancy and childbirth. And yet that's where our sort of medical system has come around to. So anyway, that was my, that was 15 years of, that's what my focus was of that's how you view pregnancy and childbirth was with that pathological model in mind. And then I came to actually finally be qualified and actually be then practicing under my own baton, if you like, and then seeing uh, what childbirth actually looks like with now fresh eyes when I'm actually having these women in front of me. And what I'm talking about there is I became a private obstetrician. And so in private obstetrics, I have low risk women come to me for pregnancy care, as well as the medium risk, if you want to use that word, and the high risk pregnancy people that come to me as well. But these low risk women that I am now supporting for the first time in my career, because when I'm training and when I'm working as a public obstetrician, um, I don't ever 
need to or get the opportunity to support low-risk women who are having uncomplicated childbirth and so I don't get that experience. Anyway, but now here I am as a private obstetrician and having these low-risk uncomplicated women come to me and look to me to care for them through their pregnancy and birth. And I realize for the first time, whilst I'm doing it, whilst, let's be honest, whilst they've paid me all of this money to be this expert, and then it dawns on me that I'm not the expert because that's been my experience of only looking after high risk or pathological birth. And that was a real uh, mind blowing like realization. And then I had to obviously go, okay, now that I've understood that about myself, am I going to do anything about it? And am I going to fix it? Because one tempting thing would actually just be to potentially just ignore that and continue to believe that I am the most qualified person in the hierarchy of birth to look after women regardless of their needs and just to keep on going and just to then do the stuff that I know how to do. I was trained to know how to cut an episiotomy and then to suture it up afterwards. I was trained to know when and how to do an instrumental birth, like a vacuum or a forceps, and when and how to do a cesarean. I can just continue to do that. That's a much easier pathway in one regards to take. But at the end of the day, my absolute priority is to want the best outcome for each woman and her family. And so if I'm trying to support her, then with that, actually the best outcome for the vast majority of women, especially, of course, the ones in the uncomplicated scenarios, is to not intervene. It's just that I've never been taught to not intervene before. I've actually only ever been taught how to intervene. It was really difficult to then figure out when to not intervene because I've never just never seen it before. I have so many questions. I don't even know where to start because I have so much admiration for you because that is amazing self-awareness, first of all, and then the humility to be able to say, even though you are top of the hierarchy in every other area of medicine, like you are the expert, you know how to fix disease, you've done 15 years of training, that's amazing. The humility to be able to say, oh, Actually, maybe I'm not the expert in physiological birth because I haven't seen it very much. I just bow down to you because I truly think that that takes incredible humility and self-awareness to get to that point. Like you said, it could have been very easy to just ignore and go, but I know how to do X, Y, and Z. I'm really good at them. That is what your expertise is in. But then being able to step back and go, but does this lady need that? Mm. Can I trust birth a little bit more? Can I trust this woman a little bit more and do less? And again, we're going to get into this in a second because I just have so much like appreciation for the bind that you're in because there's a lot of pressures coming from a lot of different areas. But I'd like to go back and I'm wondering, was there like a point in your career? Was there a birth or was there a moment where it all clicked and you went, oh, hang on, I want to change up how I do this? Or was it just like a gradual crumb by crumb that you kept following and then one day you went, oh, okay, we need to change it up? How did it happen? A little bit of both. I think definitely each individual woman coming through my care and just learning a little bit more and a little bit more. But I think we've really entered an age right now where we're seeing a lot more women who are actually self-invested in researching and learning about pregnancy and childbirth. And so there was a couple certainly of key players, if you like, of patients of mine who 
were secure enough in their resolutions about what they wanted in childbirth to push back when, say, I'm suggesting something and they push back at me. And then I have to, if they've challenged me, I should be able to back up then what I'm saying as well. And so maybe go back and then say, look at the research or whatever, and then maybe realize that there isn't as much research into whatever topic it was that she was pushing back at me about. And then having to come back and admit, uh, you're right, the things that I was quoting to you might not be founded on as much evidence, if you like, that we just sometimes just do things by rote. Somebody said to me once this thing, and now I've learned to, to now I just say it to patients, even though I can't say why I think that way. And it's not actually based on anything. So yeah, there was definitely a couple of key patients who were self-advocating enough that they pushed my boundaries. And can I say, yeah, it hurts. It's difficult. It's really stretching to go into that battle zone's the wrong word but and then as you say have that maybe that humility to say yeah you were right and I was wrong or and you know what because at the end of the day what I've learned is it actually doesn't even matter if I am right so to speak like even if there is evidence for say this is the best way to do something because we know that's got the lowest risk of say a third degree tear but if the woman knows that and is still prepared to take that gamble and she would prefer to do it that way, then it actually doesn't matter what I think about it anyway. It's all just about what she would actually like to do. And then I should still be able to support her in that choice, even if it was a choice that I personally wouldn't make. As, as long as I know she's not doing anything actually ridiculously endangering to her life, her baby's life or whatever, and there's very limited things that would come under that banner, then I should be able to support her in whatever choice that she's making. And then it was perhaps in these experiences where then with them potentially like forcing my hand, so to speak, to maybe not do the things that I would otherwise do. And then it was okay that I was able to start learning bit by bit about, mm. say, what happens if you don't cut an episiotomy, for example. Oh, you know what? Actually, that perineum was fine. Who knew? I, I, I roll like... my eyes at myself <laughs> now because I just... <laughs> why do we think that cutting a perineum is going to be a better outcome for most women? No, of course it's not. But like you said, if all you've seen is... Like it's safety and this risk and we'll never know if you didn't cut that episiotomy, how it would have gone. So you never, ever get to have the evidence on the contrary of, oh, what if we had left it and then that would have happened? You like, you just don't get to play that. So you just have to assume that you're doing it for X, Y, and Z. And therefore, if you hadn't have done it, you know, they would have torn, for example. So it starts to create that belief system. And I think what's really cool is for anything in life, like we can tell ourselves a different story and then we can find evidence to prove that's real. And you've gone ahead and done that. And imagine that would have been really hard to go, I have got these 17 tools at my disposal that only <laughs> I can use, but I'm going to sit back and trust. Yeah. And hey, guess what? That perineum was intact. That was fine. <laughs> evidence to show that that's possible. And then you do it again. Tick, evidence to show that's possible. And then you start to build up the evidence to support that belief, the belief for you that in certain women, this can happen. And obviously your skills are still there for those women that need it. But being able to accept and acknowledge and now see evidence for, ah, 
women actually can do this. I don't need to interfere. Women's bodies are capable of this. And I just imagine that would have been, like you said, you roll your eyes now, but imagine all the time that would have been like a real penny drop moment of, oh, I can stand back and just witness this woman and support her in other ways, but I don't need to do anything. Hence why you change your approach from a quote, (laughs) when to do nothing. And again, I think that's a really hard bind to be in, given that everything you've been taught is about how to do things. That's what you're being tested on and studied so hard for and trained so hard to do. So I just think it's amazing, again, your ability to be able to zoom out and for those women that, you know, are doing it well and are low risk and don't need intervention to be able to really honor that. I think it's amazing. So tell me, 15 years of doing all of this training, how do you go about unlearning? That is not easy to do in any profession, but particularly this. And I wanted to quote as well, because I thought this was help give the listeners a really good context for what sort of medical training you do have to go through. You said as a trainee, you're encouraged to do 300 C-sections, 150 forceps or vacuum deliveries, and only attend 20 quote unquote normal vaginal deliveries. And when you look at that on paper, you're like, whoa, that really, you can understand the slant that you have towards birth. Like I remember as a physio going onto the neuro ward and I thought I was going to have a brain aneurysm because all that was in my head is that this is what happens to people. And same thing, we'd go on the cardiac ward and every time we got chest pain, we're like, oh great, we're going to have a heart attack. Always have those bodies. And imagine if when you're training, you're doing C-sections, you're doing forceps, you're doing vacuum. And such a small proportion of that is like doing nothing it is really going to influence how you approach birth. So how do you unlearn all that you've learned? So what were your first steps apart from doing less and doing creating that evidence? What else have you done to try and unlearn what you learned? Yeah, how interesting, isn't it? It suddenly gives you that understanding then about how we've come to this place where you've got obstetricians, if you like, and on one side of the fence talking about how dangerous pregnancy and and birth is and then you have say if we're going to be just very black and white let's then just say the midwives are on the other side where they are typically looking after the very uncomplicated births as well and they're trying to tell us that birth is natural and fine and we've got our view which is to say but what about all of the people with preeclampsia and a placenta previa and you can't actually have a normal straightforward vaginal delivery if you've got a placenta previa without risking a hemorrhage it's so dangerous and what about all and what about this and what about this and what about this and we're just finding it difficult to meet in this middle ground where we can actually appreciate both people's point of view which i think is probably like that would be the solution i think to helping where our health care crisis has come to, but but that does take a lot of understanding on both sides of the fence. Anyway, yeah, I do have, I was trained to have this biased view and it's inevitable because when we're then training and yet we've knocked off those 20 straightforward vaginal births in the first year of our training and now I'm concentrating on gearing up my skills to be able to do a really nice vacuum and a really good forceps and a, a good Caesar. And the further along we go in our training, the more and more complicated births that we attend and the less and less uncomplicated births that we attend. And so our mindset is just reinforced and continuously reinforced down this tunnel vision perspective of how dangerous birth is. And we've done these studies and we've done these stats where if you look at then 
the mode of birth that obstetricians and obstetric trainees choose for themselves. There is a disproportionate amount of, say, elective cesarean births that happen in obstetricians and obstetricians' families because then we've, that because we're so scared, if you like, of, of birth and, and what its potential complications can be. So that just shows you, yeah, that is where we're coming from and, and what our mindset is. And that's really hard to then undo that. It takes, for me, it took firstly just actually looking at it from a wider, say, population basis level, from an epidemiological perspective, if you like, from the idea of how can we possibly exist as a human race if 30% or now we're up to, say, 33% in Australia, births have to happen by cesarean, we wouldn't actually exist or certainly we wouldn't continue to increase the number that we increase if a third of our births had to be by cesarean to actually be the safest option for people and that sort of 15% chance of vacuum or forceps as well. So it can't possibly be true that we need these interventions. And then likewise, one of the other key things that happened to me is if I looked at, say, the home birth statistics. So my view as an obstetrician on home birth automatically, without thinking about it, was that's got to be dangerous because you don't have access to cesareans and forceps and whatnot if you're planning on having a home birth. And so when statistics then comes out that say things in a home birth situation, you're X percentage lower chance of having a forceps, for example. And I go, of course, you're going to have a lower risk of forceps in a home birth. I get that. But in my obstetric brain, I go, yeah, but you know what you're going to have? You're going to have worse outcomes for babies and you're going to have worse outcomes for perineums and things like that because you don't have those life-saving tools at your disposal. And then, oh my gosh, I looked at the stats. We've got some really good stats that have come out at a population basis in Victoria, for example, that was able to say that things like in a low-risk population, that having a home birth decreased the chances of all of those interventions, obviously, but with no greater impact on neonatal or maternal bad outcomes. And I go, there's just another way of proving that for a majority of women, we don't need those interventions and it's actually safer for them to not have access to those interventions. So what are we doing in our hospital system then? Why are we continuing our rates to increase on cesareans, for example, and inductions as a second thing? And we're not seeing better outcomes. In fact, we're potentially seeing worse outcomes. Where does this shift? How do we change it? I don't know the answer to that, but it was enough for me to go, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't need to intervene as much as I have been taught to intervene. I love that. And I think that's really kudos to you because I think it's really valuable for anyone that to be able to recognize your own judgments. And then step outside of that and actually look objectively at the situation, not just, I imagine it's deeply ingrained, like so many judgments. You've gone through the medical model. So home birth is on the other side of that. And there's all these labels on it and there's all these dangers and things. But when you can step back from that and actually go, oh, hang on, I could learn something from this. I think mm. that's really valuable for your patients. That's, you're going to bring a very different attitude and belief in birth into your practice 
if you can step outside of those judgments, we all have them in whatever direction it goes, whether we're judging interventionist birth, whether we're judging home birth, hands-off birth, we've all got our own judgments. And I just think being able to step outside of your judgments and be able to come at it with what is best for this woman in front of me right now is amazing. So I'd love to know, since you changed this approach in 2022, what effects have you seen on your birthing stats, first of all, because I know that you're really big on stats and I love how you compare them to the national average and you're really good at like being accountable in that regard, but also to the women that you're working with, like just subjectively, how are they feeling? What sort of feedback are they giving you about their births? Like, how's it feeling to have changed this approach with your, the women that you're working with? It's a really good question and it's really, there's so many answers to that. So yeah, number one, I do believe in doing self-reflection and including then a self-audit of what my own statistics are, because I think that is one way of showing how my practices have changed is being able to hopefully prove that, that my intervention rates are going down, but my complication rates are not going up because that helps to reinforce that going in the right direction from just a medical complication perspective. And then you're right that another way of looking at that would be to look at, say, maternal satisfaction rates. I don't know statistics on that because that would take uh, some research and, say, questionnaires and whatnot on my women. But at least I do, of course, get lovely feedback from, from women. But what... It's really interesting though, and this will continue to be what I say is that at the end of the day, it, for me, it comes down to what that woman wants as her individual preference, because it's then, if I then say, for example, that I want to do only non-interventionalists birth, that's actually not the thing that every woman is going to choose as well. And so just as I've said, it can't be about what I would choose in the situation. It has to be about what she would choose in the same situation. It goes the same when we're talking about then my new bias, if you like, of how I want to do non-intervention stuff. Because in private obstetrics, I still have a reasonable proportion of women who come to me, who have come to me because they want intervention. I still have, say, a 20% of my women who are for an induction without, say, a standard medical reason to want one. And so I, my statistics, for example, are not necessarily still going to meet the same as, say, a midwife group practice will because of the patients who come to me as a private obstetrician, because there's, I think, a proportion of women who come to a private obstetrician because they know that she, she can get that control element when she's wanting an interventionalist birth, like an elective cesarean, for example, or an elective induction. And then I have to honour that as well, because we can't then assume that a physiological hands-off birth is what every one woman wants as well. And there's many reasons for that. And there's many reasons around that would be good to see changed. For example, this underlying fear that women might have of childbirth because of where our, say, society and culture and media portray birth, wouldn't it be nice if we could change that so that every woman understood that birth was difficult, but amazing and empowering and triumphant in the vast majority of cases, if we could change that underlying fear and anxiety, if we could change her desire to have control over birth, because 
in our society nowadays, we have built up this expectation that we are in control of our own destiny. And so that goes over into birth as well. We want to have control over what happens in in our birth, but then sometimes the way that manifests itself is that we then would prefer to choose something like an induction, for example, or a cesarean, because that's how we feel we're getting control over birth. So there's yeah some other much bigger questions and things that I think would be wonderful to change, but I certainly don't think that I can change them. <laughs> one one small step at a time. Yeah. <laughs> I I really resonate with what you said because I agree. I think. There's so much about just our narrative around birth and our beliefs around birth. It does have most women I know fearful in some way, shape or form. And it would be amazing for all women to grow up not having that inbuilt fear around birth and then needing to overcome it because many won't and many will want to elect to have lots of different options so that they can combat that fear. So yes, A, that would be amazing, but small steps, it's not going to happen overnight. I really appreciate the bind you're in though, because like you said, this is not about then going towards the other side of the coin and then having another bias, which is non-intervention now. I so appreciate that because that's really challenging to come and appreciate physiological birth and you know, hands-off birth and all of that, but then to have maternal requests for induction, cesareans, all these sorts of things. And ultimately in the day, knowing that you're you need to honor that woman, even if you're like, yeah, but I know all this stuff and I know that you can actually do this. And I know that if I'm hands off, it will be better for you. Rah. I think that's such a bind to be in. And I so appreciate how you navigate that because I guess at the end of the day, it comes down to informed consent. And all you can do is give them all the information that you have available to help eliminate any fears they have or answer any questions that they have. And at the end of the day, if say they still request an induction or still request a cesarean, as a private obstetrician, like I guess in a public system, we're talking about a very different story, I imagine, whereas in private, there is more autonomy from the patient's end and yeah, being able to honor that. Like I think I, I remember having this talk with you at Sophie Walker's book launch and I was just like mind blown at how you navigate. I just imagine you in the middle and it's a little pressure cooker and you've got midwives from one end being like, this is what you should do, Natalie. And then obstetric colleagues from one end be like, no, this is what you should do. This is, you know, how you should do it. And then you've done these 15 years of unlearning. You're like, oh, okay. I think this is how I want to do it. And then you've got a patient on the other side being like, yeah, but I want an induction. Yeah. And then you've got insurance and legalities and hospital policies. And I just imagine this pressure cooker in the middle and you're like, whoa. I don't know what to do anymore. That's how I would feel anyway if I was in your position. Yeah. I just so appreciate that it's a really tricky position to be in. It's a really tricky spot to navigate. But I really like that at the end of the day, you came back to honoring the woman in front of you. And even if that may not look the choice look like the choices that you've made, and on one end that might be that woman you spoke about earlier who's, I know that there's a risk I could have another third degree tear, but I choose to still go this route anyway. And you're like, yep, cool. I'm going to support you even if that's not what I would choose. And then on the other end, you've got the woman who comes in for no other medical reason, but just would like a cesarean section because of whatever. You don't know their background all the time. Like a lot of women that's the path that they need to go. And you being able to go, you know what? I support you. I've given you all the information and, you know, I'm going to support you in this decision. I think that's a really amazing place to be where you can 
support women after giving them full informed consent and just be able to support them. Because what we know, and we've got high birth trauma rates in our country at the moment, we know that something needs to change about that. And I've interviewed a number of counsellors and psychologists on the podcast, and the main theme comes down to feeling safe, seen, and soothed in birth. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. It's not so much about how you actually give birth, whether it's a vaginal delivery or a cesarean section or whether you've had intervention or no intervention, whether you gave birth on your knees or on your back or whatever it is, it's about how you feel when you give birth. And so if you feel safe, if you feel seen, if you feel soothed, that seems to be the most protective layers to experiencing birth trauma. And so I'm just picturing this woman who comes in and is like, I really want a C-section. And if her needs are truly honored and she feels safe in that environment, she feels heard and she feels seen, she's going to have a really positive birth experience. And I've actually dealt with a number of clients who have gone through the public system and for whatever reason have requested a cesarean section and have really come up against a lot of pushback because it's not so easy to just ask for one unless there's medical reason. And for whatever, they might have trauma from a previous vaginal delivery or like sexual abuse trauma. There's so many reasons why women just really don't want to entertain a vagina delivery and the amount of stress it's caused them because they really can't get this C-section that they really want. And that's really distressing for me to hear as well, even though I'm so big on, you can do this, you can birth, like you can trust yourself. I think at the end of the day, it's not about being so right in the other corner. It's about being like, here's all the information and I'm going to support you in whatever you need for you. And I just so appreciate that bind you're in because like I said, I just think this pressure cooker, Dr. Natalie in the middle and yeah, it'd be really tricky to navigate saying all of that. Do you have any feedback on that before I move on? Yeah, certainly I agree. At the end of the day, it's all about that informed consent, isn't it? And informed consent talks to making sure that woman understands what all of the risks are and advantages of choice A and what all the risks and advantages are of choice B, because often we just talk about risks and we don't talk about the advantages. And then letting her decide um, what's the best choice for her and then supporting her in that. What it just means is that if you come for a consult with me, it's just going to take a really long time because now I have a greater understanding of how to counsel better as mm. well, because prior my counseling um, my, was still very much skewed towards just that medical approach. And now at least I get to also counsel about that sort of physiological approach and then let her see where she sits in the middle of it. And, and certainly that is one of the better things about private obstetric care is, as you say, that the woman gets much more autonomy into be able to make that choice that suits her and then to have us support that. Whereas in the public system, we're potentially screwing her over in two ways, right? Number one, we have all of these policies and protocols that talk about, say, inducing women for a huge amount of reasons now and say a lot of women don't necessarily want to have an induction, but we're forcing them down that road. And then on the other side, we've got the women who are requesting an induction or a cesarean and then we're denying them that choice because that doesn't fit our policy or protocol either. Private obstetrics for me allows me a much greater satisfaction of care for me to know that I'm giving that to her mm. as well and that's how I can help do you know my own self-care is to know that I'm giving her the best option for her that she could choose. Yeah absolutely and I think 
because I love seeing that you do the regular order of your birth stats, but I definitely, not that you have probably anything to compare it to, but I do think it would be super interesting and valuable to do some mental health questionnaire or birth satisfaction questionnaire, or I'm sure there's something validated out there that you could use for these women just to see regardless of say where your induction rates are and your cesarean rates are, but what are women's satisfaction with their birth and like their feeling of being supported and being cared for. And it'd be really fascinating for me to see that regardless of, because like you said, you have to still honor these women having maternal requests for that. So it's only one measure of, I guess, from my point of view, how well you're doing in supporting women to truly birth the way they want to birth. Before we wrap up this episode, I'd love to know, what do you now see as your role with the birthing woman and in the birthing environment? Uh, yeah, now I feel like I need to or want to be this combination of a midwife and an obstetrician <laughs> at the same time. People have asked me before, should you have become a midwife instead of becoming an obstetrician or is there regrets there? And at the end of the day, no, I don't regret all of that training. I don't regret being an obstetrician. I am very grateful for all of those years because what it means is that I still have the ability then to essentially meet, hopefully, this big statement, but to be able to meet every woman where she is, support her in that low-risk physiological birth to the best of the ability of care that we've got and to still be able to support the emergency crash cesarean birth as well and for that person to still be the same person, i.e. me, regardless of which way that birth goes. So I, I certainly don't regret my obstetric training. I'm very grateful for that as well. I'm not a midwife. I'm not going to claim to be a midwife. There is a bunch of midwifery skills that I don't have. That ability to literally be by that woman's side for the hour upon an hour and hour and hour and hour of labor and birth, I don't have the capacity to just in the terms of my role. And so I'm not a midwife. But at least I'm learning that better balance about where to step in and where to not step in. So mm. that's my role in the birth room. Come and do nothing or come and do something, but come and um, just be there with a the woman. I love that. That's so great. Hey, mamas, I really hope that you enjoyed that chat, whether you're a mama or a birth professional. I think it's really fascinating to hear. Hear it from a different angle and hear the bind that obstetricians are in and the training that they go through. And I think it's so impressive the unlearning that someone like a Dr. Natalie is trying to do right now so that she can better serve those women who don't need her medical expertise, those women who do want continuity of care, but also want really good birth outcomes. And I think it's so amazing for her to acknowledge that sometimes less is more because she has all the tools that she can use. And, you know, it's so easy to just use them because that's what you know, but she's really actively choosing not to when she knows she doesn't need to because she knows there's better birth outcomes when less is happening for majority of women. So I just think it's super amazing to see professionals like her changing the way maternity systems are operating. So I really hope you love this chat. You can connect with Natalie at Dr. Natalie Alfingston on Instagram and you know where to find me at Physio Laura. Come and chat with me. Let me know what you thought about this episode. And there will be a second episode released with Dr. Natalie this week because we do also discuss maternal assisted cesarean. So I'll drop a second episode later in this week so that you get to hear two episodes from both of us this week. 
I think that would be really great for any woman navigating C-section births and all of her different preferences. So stay tuned. Make sure you subscribe to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast so you don't miss out. And I'll be in your ears later this week. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.